connoisseurs. We hope you find today's word palatable. It's belly wash, spelled B-E-L-L-Y hyphen W-A-S-H. Belly wash is a noun that means any barely drinkable liquid or beverage as inferior soda, beer, coffee, or soup. Here's belly wash used in the late 19th century book Civil Falcon by the English writer Edgar Jepson. For what do Sir Richard know about wine? He drinks Bordeaux, Claret, and Hawk. Belly wash, I call it belly wash. Belly wash also sometimes refers to nonsense, which makes it similar to how we use the word hogwash, which can refer literally to scraps given to the hogs, also called swill, but is more generally used of bunk or meaningless talk. Interestingly, the nonsense meaning of hogwash is a development of American English, just as is the term belly wash itself. That particular sense of hogwash and the word belly wash both emerged in the late 19th century. Wash down today's dose of vocab with more fun facts over at Word of the Day by Dictionary.com. They're all guilty of interrupting. I won't interrupt you, I promise. I won't interrupt your words or your thoughts. Imagine it. Imagine the relief and the possibilities and the dignity. You now have the ground that is yours, unassailably. This is for you. Time to think, to feel figure out what you really want to say, to say it, to consider it, to change it, to finish your sentences, to choose your own words, to become, because you can trust the promise, a bit bold, even eloquent, to become you. And because you know I will not interrupt you, you will want, when you finish, to know what I think too. Even if we disagree deeply, you open your heart, you become open. And because you in turn promise not to interrupt me, I become open and I open my heart. We all long for this, for the promise of no interruption, the promise of interest, the promise of attention while we think the promise of this much respect for all of us as human beings. We long for that gentle, rigorous expanse that produces felt thinking and thoughtful feeling. Every day in every interaction, vital or trivial, we hope for the kind of presence that lets our brains and our hearts find themselves. We were born for this. In fact, says the science, we were born expecting it. Our brains needed it to keep forming when we were infants, almost marasipuli. They still do. To stay full homo sapiens, our minds and our hearts need this promise. And yet it is nowhere. We look around and we can't find it. We can only see interruption. Our colleagues interrupt us. Our professional our professionals interrupt us, our beloveds interrupt us, our friends interrupt us, we interrupt.
where in your circles can you point to a single person you who you are certain will not interrupt you when you speak? Who in your circle has ever made this promise to you and kept it? And have you ever made that promise to anyone? Most likely not. That is the shocking truth. The one thing that we can absolutely depend on in life is that we will be interrupted when we start to think. In fact, according to the Gottman Institute in Seattle, three years ago, the average listening time of a professional listener was 20 seconds. Now it is 11. 11 seconds. I shudder when I hear that. And those of us who are paid to listen, coaches, therapists, doctors, managers, lay leaders, teachers, pastors, advisors, have paid for endless instruction in how to listen. But the instruction is effectively in how to insert, how to tailgate, how to justify the populating of science with our own view. It is listening that expects us to interrupt. Also, it seems, certainly, observ observably, it does not require us to promise not to. And so we interrupt, all of us, paid or not, professionals and parents, leaders and learners, wages and earners, shareholders. We move through our days and years interrupting others and failing to foil it when others interrupt us. And it matters. Interruption dismisses us. It diminishes our thinking in, in the face of it. Our, own thinking really has a chance to form that means that our decisions are weaker our relationships are thinner interruption of thinking is so destructive in fact that we that what we have produced as a species however advanced it may be in the animal kingdom is probably inferior to the achievements and the uninterrupted human mind that have produced over the e those eons in fact, you could mention it just about. In fact, you could mention just about any stubborn issue in your life, and I would wonder why whether you might have resolved it already, had you not been interrupted so many times on the road to now. You could name almost any in innovation, from howling steam engines to hallowed cyberspace, and argue that humanity might. Have well have thought of things more elegant nourishing of our thinking had not been interrupted so much along the way much most of the vital questions human beings have asked through the ages how can we educate how can we heal how can we earn how can we govern how can we judge who should be rich and who should be poor who's right might have produced more subtle egalitarian integrated in integrated distinct dignifying answers if we had not interrupted each other so often in conversations and meetings and musings if we also had not interrupted ourselves because others interruptions over the years had convinced us that we didn't have much to offer anyway and in our relationships, I surely don't need to articulate the difference in the, the promise of no interruption might have had might have made in every single relationship since humans developed language. 
Think about yours. Imagine your relationships without interruption. Imagine the sweet, stimulating stewardness that would grow. I often wonder if divorce figures would reduce dramatically and if there had been a vow of no interruption at the wedding. Then, as if interruption by each other were not enough to minister to the diminishment of our independent minds and the shrinking of the meaning of our relationships and to smartphones, more accurately hurt phones or stupid phones, with their built-in services of platforms and that colonize our attention, they slap our brains into stupidity, relentlessly distracting our thinking begins to hemorrhage. This loss is not wholly the device's fault, of course, it's mostly our own. Even with the smartphone on purpose, designed in distraction of vacation architecture, our proposition and at their non-human feet is the real issue. Our, our abstinence demotes the advanced human, and we pretend it doesn't. We don't take charge of our attention, our little robots do, and we caress them. This we can stop, this we can stop all forms of interruption. We can decide right now to be masters of our own attention and to commit flourishing our, of our minds and to commit to the flourishing of our minds and of our hearts and of our very nature. This attention, this promise not to interrupt, this act of breathing free, this prog- Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. You're interrupting me right now. I'm here, I'm trying to do this podcast and you're touching me in the head with your dirty little paw. And you're upside down trying to be cute and I don't even like you in my room. So tell me, um, excuse me Sir Kai, but you're interrupting my, on my podcast. Prodigious. Prodigious, that's the word of the day. Since he likes to touch my screen, I guess we're going to toss, take a break, and the word of the day is... Prodigious. Prodigious. Causing amazement or wonder, extraordinary in bulk, quantity or degree, enormous, result resembling an or befitting a prodigy, strange and unusual. Now you've gone and wrecked my podcast. Now I don't know where I was. Gonna have to find my spot again. This attention, this promise not to interrupt, this act of breathing free is prodigious. It changes everything. 
even the big things it bestows sanity it shapes and reveals the shapes against again of who we are it offers ease in the face of uncertainty it can stop things like hatred and start things like love it rescues our meetings from bureaucracy and creates fabulous places to work brings humanity to leadership and leadership to humanity attention some have told me is what we mean by God. It launches the dreams we have for ourselves, yes, but also the dreams for our world. We all have them, most cynical of us. We've just grown wary and and weary and willing to walk away from each other and from ourselves. This promise of no interruption, this sustaining of generation attention, a generative attention can occur, can turn us towards each other. In fact, the decision to not interrupt each other is powerful enough to m- mitigate the the pretend relationship issue of our time and the issue that cleaves our conversation at work and politics and families and invisibility inside ourselves. This. The sotennial beautification we call polarization. This contemporary scourge is ancestral, and it is a high time we faced it down by facing the cause. Polar polarization is not the result of a disagreement; it's the result of a disconnection. When we disconnect from each other, we see each other no longer as human beings but as threats we polarize the first most forceful disconnection or is is interruption think polarization starts with and it is fed by interruption the one minute the minute one of us in stark disagreement interrupts the other the brain registers the interruption as a physical assault Immediately, the brain's hormones of adrenaline and cortisol breathe the cortex, bathe the cortex, and the very center of our thinking, the amygdala, the amygdala, I can't say this word, what is it? Amygdala, holy God, I can't say it. The amygdala mangada, <laughs> I can't say it. Oh Lord. Anyways, th- this part of our brain. <laughs> now I don't know what I was reading. Kai, you gotta stop touching my screen, bro. It's really annoying.
Immediately the brain's hormones of adrenaline and cortisol bathe the cortex, the very center of our thinking. The dictator of feelings dispatches the the triumvirate actions of freezing, fleeing, fighting, and presto, we disconnect. Our thinking shrivels and the polarization is born. But I've seen people stop that cycle. I have seen them gather instead determined to understand each other, not to convince each other. Crucially, they have arrived having promised to stop interrupting and they have agreed to stop giving attention to say to stay interested to where others thinking will go next to share the stage equally. The promise of no interruption consisting of those three little ingredients changed their conversation forever. Polarization fizzled. New possibilities emerged. Those three ingredients walked forward together, not into the sunset. It was better than that. They walked into the grit and the gossamer of new things that springs from emotional integrity and understands the mutual cherishing of the of the effects of this powerful promise. I will not interrupt you. It changes everything. Good, you may be thinking I'm in, but surely I don't need to read on. I can't just take your... Shit. Good, you may be thinking I'm in, but surely... I don't need to go on. I can't just take your point. Stop interrupting and tra-la, change the world. In theory, yes, it should be enough for us just to notice this out-of-control society rewarded devastating practice of interruption, this wholesale sanctioned violence against independent thinking and resolve to stop it today. But it isn't. This practice of, of interrupting people speaking and thinking is fed in, at an ideological level inside of us. We think it is right. It is the right thing to do. We really do. Or we know it is not really polite or considerate, so sometimes we apologize as we do it, but we keep doing it anyway. And we think it is nearly always justified, and maybe even the very best thing that can happen at that moment we think we are even saving time by knocking down the person talking while we hold while we hold the fourth delusion takes some undoing to un, some doing to undo first we really need to understand what interrupting that interrupting is a violent act to begin with we need to understand that inter, what interruption is we have recognized all of this pernicious and art in artful forms and then we have to examine it at the cellular level we have to see the the untrue assumptions that drive it take them apart and start over with true ones keeping the promise of no interruption is a tough job because <laughs> this promise is a vast galaxy of a thing that stretches past our stretches past our all at once field and it defines the group the groupling and it defines our gulping the whole cannot be afraid the whole cannot be 
parsed. And yet it has to be. And yet it has to be, to be understood. Every day over the years I have thought repeatedly that I had seen this promise in all its glory. And I have thought each time I saw it that I had it down. And that there was no more to see, no more to add to its definition or its effect. And I felt confident that I was doing it justice as I wrote, as I taught, as I spoke, as I tried every day to live it. And I have committed to its treasure and I have been sure I held it in my arms. And before I could breathe out, I have, I have startled seen it as it is for the first time. As of late... My girlfriend, who I love dearly, has pointed out that I never let her finish, and that I always interrupt her, and that hurts my heart. <clears throat> I've also seen people claim this promise, clip it into their listening portfolios, and sell it as their skill set, and not come close to even, as if it, as if we could never know it. It is as if. It is here and, we, and not here, evident and elusive, finished and foretell at, all at once. I think it's because this promise is different from any other, everything else that we do with each other. I want to say that again. This is different. I think this is because the, this promise is different from anything else we do with each other. This is very different. It's different because it requires the adorning of humility, a rich regard for difference and for other. It's different because it upends the appearance of stability because it wants to and it does produce independent thinking. And so it is first. And it is. And it is different because it requires us to stop wanting to impress and start wanting to free. It changes what we call expertise. It changes what we charge for and pay for and what we reward. And it changes our very purpose. This promise and its luminous effect are different. But humans cannot see all, see difference all at once. Our predispositions, our rituals, our norms, in this case, interruptions, and its frayed and fractious outcomes, are habituated contexts. They are our preference points for what it is. So they are all that we see. We therefore have have to fell those remorseless norms one by one in order to notice their radiant absence. This felling begins by facing the emptiness of our excuses for interruption. I must clarify, I must correct, I must look smart, I must enrich, I must follow my own curiosity. I know where this is going. I need you to take, I need to take this elsewhere. Your uninformed thought will be less valuable than my formed one. I am more important than you are. I look stupid not talking. I need to stand up for myself. No one needs to listen to this long. You will never stop. None of these is worthy of us. So I hope that you will step away from 
that culture and follow the first light and the soon-to-be obvious power of this promise and it and of its effect on the intelligence in front of us including your own to stop interrupting in order to one start giving attention and to two to sustain interest in where the person will go next and three share the stage which comprises possibly the simplest cluster of complex change we will ever make I invite you to give it a try you never know until you try Things falling apart is kind of a testing and also got a kind of healing. We think that the point is to pass the test or to overcome the problem, but the truth is things really don't ever get solved. They come together and they fall apart, then they come together again and they fall apart again. It's just like that. The healing comes from letting there be room for all of this to happen. Room for grief and room for relief or for misery or for joy. The journey goes down and not up. It's as if the mountain t- pointed towards the center of the earth instead of reaching towards the sky. Instead of transcending the suffering of all the creatures. We move toward the turbulence and doubt. We jump into it, we slide into it, we tiptoe into it at our own pace. Without speed or aggression. We move down and down and down, with us millions of others, our companions and awakening from fear. At the bottom we discover the water, right down there in the thick of things we discover that love will not die. Impermanence becomes vivid in the present moment, so does compassion and wonder and courage, and so does fear. In fact, anyone who stands on the edge of the unknown, fully in the present without reference point, experiences groundlessness. That's when our understanding is deeper, when we find that the present moment is is a pretty vulnerable place, and that this can be completely unnerving and completely tender at the same time. But that notion of the unnerving and the tender and the tender coexisting I've always thought is so beautiful it's like the opposite of the world we live in meaning this is truth this is reality this is how we actually always feel this is what always this is what's always going on and you don't hear about it in your day-to-day in the world it's not in the news next to what's happening but it's there bubbling just under the surface, that uncertainty and that fear and that thirst to go on like something's like, to go on like something like a self, like a journey of self-discovery, let's say. But it's so nice because you don't feel so alone. 
I used to word the used to use the word hope a lot, and I always say that hope is a muscular word. It's, hope is a muscle. Hope is a choice, and hope is like optimism, which is wishful thinking. So it challenges me this language of hopelessness in the word. In the word, the word in Tibetan for hope is riwa. The word for fear is dokka. Dokpa. <laughs> and there's a word that is used which combines hope and fear. Hope and fear is one feeling with two sides. As long as there's one, there's the other. And in the world of hope and fear, we always have to change the channel, change the temperature, change the music because something is getting uneasy, something is getting restless, something is beginning to hurt. We keep looking for alternatives in this place. You could even put your abandon all hope here sign on your refrigerator door instead of more conventional aspirations like every day in every way I'm getting better and better. I will explain why it's so fearing to hear abandon hope. To think that we can finally get it all together is unrealistic. To seek for some lasting security is futile. To undo our very ancient and very stuck habitual patterns of mind requires that we begin to turn around some of our most basic assumptions. Believing in a solid, separate self. Continuing to seek pleasure and to avoid pain and thinking that someone out there is to blame for our pain. That One has to get totally fed up with these ways of thinking. One has to give up hope that this way of thinking will bring us satisfaction. Suffering begins to dissolve when we can question the belief or the hope that there's anywhere to hide. But it's more of the reality of in facing this delusional hope that's based on escaping suffering or just making every good or running from something that feels bad. As opposed to that line, suffering begins to dissolve when we can question the belief or the hope that there's somewhere to hide. That's the thing. We're stuck together. We're in this together. There is nowhere to hide. There's a billion distractions and so much of our entire life is spelt in those distractions. And those are very subjective things. Whenever our distraction is, I've got a bazillion gazillion of them. But the hope that the suffering will go away if I don't look at it, that's the wrong kind of hope to have. That's the hope we're not so into. There's teachings that tell us that obstacles occur at the outer level and at the inner level. <laughs> in Tibet, to teach the Buddhists this. In this context, the outer level is in the same sense that something or somebody has harmed us. <clears throat> in interfering with the harmony and peace we thought was ours. Some rascal has ruined it all. This particular sense of obstruction occurs in relationships and in many other situations that we feel disappointed or harmed or confused or attacked in a variety of ways. People have felt this way since the beginning of time. As for the inner level of, of obstacle, perhaps nothing ever really attacks us except for our own confusions. If 
Perhaps there is no solid obstacle except for our own need to protect ourselves from being touched. Maybe the only enemy that we don't like the way reality is now and therefore wish it would go away fast. Talk about not liking reality now is kind of a huge sledgehammer of now, global now. So, as one would say, we all have this. We all have this ability, this softness, this ability to know, to be present, to be in kinship with the suffering of others. And yet, as we all also reflexively understand, it just feels so much, it just feels too much like reading the newspaper. I'd like to try tongling. What? you want to be scratch your back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try the tonglin because I can't read it. I can't read it at all anymore. We think that by protecting ourselves from suffering, which I think is what I've been trying to do my whole life. When I'm well when I'm trying to just turn off the news. We think that by protecting ourselves from suffering we are being kind to ourselves. And the truth is we only become more fearful, more hardened, and more alienated. We experience ourselves as being separate from the whole. The separateness becomes like a prison for us. A prison that restricts us to our personal hopes and fears and to caring for only for the people nearest us. Curiously enough, if we are primarily to shield ourselves from discomfort, we suffer. So when you're practicing Tonglin, reading the newspaper or whatever practice that you can do anytime can be ordinary it can be while brushing your hair listening to me to the rain or making music <clears throat> it's just a frame of mind which with which you approach something that's how it starts kind of it's definitely a way of unburdening yourself from yourself too because it's a relief to care about somebody else really it's a relief to realize that to get out of your own head so I like to so like I say I don't know if it is helping that person when you're sending that wave of love of strength of wisdom of healing I don't know if it's helping them but I know it helps me and that's the 101 kind of place to be. Because, you know, the classic story of when the airplane is... There's no oxygen. You don't put on the mask. On the, you don't put the mask on the kid first. You put it on yourself and then you put it on the child. It's like, okay, you have to help. You have to kind of work on yourself in order to be able to help others. And that's Tonglin. Tonglin is a really, really wonderful way of having a kind of consistent practice of getting out of yourself and being compassionate for others and remembering that there are other human beings on this planet because there's no shortage of opportunity to work on it. And especially not now, especially now that there's no shortage, that we have no shortages. 
That's where this sledgehammer of nowness comes into play. Whoa, this is the constant thing that is happening and it's not just going to go away because we want it to. We're really forced to lean into the sharp edges more than ever. We are standing on this sharp edge. We are sitting on it. And the really cool thing about it is just to be curious about it. There's a kind of underlying approach, this fear, this approach, this anxiety, and approach this heartache with curiosity. Like, oh, this is interesting, and I'm interested, and I'm a tourist here, checking it out and taking photos. I don't actually live in this place, but I want to get to know it. Because it is happening, whether you want it to or not, whether you like it or not, it will keep happening. I can approach it with the curiosity. This is happening. Or I can be angry. This is happening. This is the attitude. And I just have to be a little bit more curious feeling about it. And then I can let the waves pass because, wow, I don't think I've ever personally felt or had my friends and family feel so completely distracted and focused at the same time. And so completely exhausted and weirdly energized at the same time and so completely overwhelmed by uncertainty and the fear of the now. And then it's a tidal wave. And so I'll get a call or a text and they're going through their own tidal wave. What is going to happen? What's happening at this moment? Maybe I'll be in this feeling of, hey, it's okay, I'm feeling pretty calm and I can accept that. I never know what's going to happen actually, so I can talk to them through the tidal wave and then I need to call somebody because I'm going through the tidal wave now because through it all if I can remember to stay cool, wisdom style, curiosity like this is interesting and I'm okay. And what I also like about it is that I think the true spiritual disciples and spiritual practices and virtues and superpowers of gratitude and patience and hope that in any given moment carrying any of those is too much to ask of somebody maybe in a given year but we also carry them together right and the one phone call you're able to present that and then somebody can offer spiritual resilience followed by some American rules of being self-made, some of the ways we've just been trained culturally get in the way of grasping that this is all about. It's not about being heroic. It's not about being heroic at all. It's not about being a saint. You know, that is definitely a North American thing. I'd say it's global, but... This is not global. I don't know in what country there are children taught that they can find strength and vulnerability. It's okay to know. It's okay to cry. These things are just, well, I don't know what they are, but I know you have to tell yourself that. It's going to be okay. I feel so much of the weird thing that we shouldn't have to wake up to, but we do, is that we inhabit bodies and that they are frail. And it's just the truth in our mindset. If we were in the midst, if we weren't in the midst of a pandemic, I would be landing indifferently. 
so I love that this quote of things falling apart as a testing a kind of healing we think that the point is to pass or overcome the problem but truth is not nothing ever really gets solved the only time we ever really know what's going on the only time we know is when the rug's been pulled out and we can't find anywhere to land we use these situations either to wake ourselves up or the very instant of groundlessness and the seed of taking care of those who need our care and discovering our goodness and that's perfect it's simply perfect there's also something really 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 helpful that in that things come together and they fall apart that's there's that sorrow no i don't want it to fall apart i want to hold on to the good but then look at it inversely and it's like this time will pass this is going to fall apart too this thing that we're going through this pandemic it will fall apart the falling apart will fall apart too so that's nice we can embrace we can celebrate that because that's a fact things will always fall apart spiritual awakening is frequently described as a journey to the top of a mountain we leave our attachments and our worldliness behind and slowly make our way to the top and at the peak we have transcended all the pain and the only problem with this metaphor is that we leave all of the others behind our drunken brother our schizophrenic sister tormented animals and friends and their suffering continues unrelieved by our personal escape the process of discovering the journey does not go down it does not go in discovering the journey goes down not up if it takes years if it takes lifetimes we explore the reality and the unpredictability of insecurity and pain and we try not to push it away we let it be as it is at our own pace with our own speed of aggression we move the word hope including the derivatives like hopeful and hopeless hopelessness occurs much in what i'm talking about but the importance of much is about the importance of giving up hope as well as also recognizing the word itself in its quiet inadequate and ambiguousness because that ambiguity giving up my hope may indeed seem almost suicidal the french language has two different words that are both commonly used as hope and english one is espoir which and the other is espérance the difference of meaning between them is huge espoir always has an object it is hoping for something that is there the attachment to the outcome for hope for one the attachment to us the attachment and it is therefore an attachment to the outcome one hopes for <laughs> jesus since the basic tenant of the buddhist tradition is that attachment is 
the root of all suffering. It is quite consistent to stretch, stress the importance of giving up that kind of hope. For instance, when T.S. Eliot writes, I said, my soul, I said to my soul, be still. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope for. Hope would be hope for the wrong thing. It's is kind of imperience as a different meaning, even if it's in circles. It describes the detached open mindedness.
Mm-hmm. <sighs> <sighs> it's hot. <laughs>